All right, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. So a couple of things. Number one is you need to know the real estate we're in. It's probably some of the most relevant to your life biblical-inspired revelation I know of. This is rich with relevance. And it's hard to say that because all the Bible is rich with relevance. And any time you make a statement like, make sure you get this, it implies in part that the rest of it you don't have to get as well. Let me say it this way. You must own this in order to experience the benefit necessary to manifest Christ in a way that causes and provokes someone to be interested in the reality you know. This passage is inspired commentary on why we do what we do, the conflict that we have, the contradiction that we sometimes live, and the challenge that's an everyday challenge. We're in James chapter 4, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. This passage says real Christians, biblical Christianity, real faith when it's lived out, manifests itself in faithful, trusting, covenant relationship with the God who gave you his abundant grace, and not as a fickle friend of the world. The passage we're talking about involves worldliness, Worldliness being defined as a perspective, a expression of your human passion and lifestyle. Worldliness is that is expressed when you prioritize yourself and your desires over God and his desires. And as a pattern, you pick the world as a solution for the satisfaction of the desires that are in you, cultivated by your fallen humanity that you have inherited from Adam. Worldliness is picking the world over God for the satisfaction of your desires, over God and his provision, and over God and his solution. Fundamentally, worldliness is self-interest, self-satisfaction, and leveraging assets, not God, in order to satisfy passions within you that the world cannot satisfy, but promises to offer hope and help regarding. A worldview that puts your pleasures and priorities in the primary place. Worldliness involves damaging and destructive desires that are yours as a result of your fallen humanity. You're built to have passion, but your passions were perverted, our passions, damaged in the fall of Adam. And then by choices we make, those passions and the perversion of those passions, both what we think we need as well as how we're going to meet that need, gets more distorted as we fuel the lie that the world can supply what we're hungry for. James says worldliness results always in human conflict. And if that weren't bad enough, worldliness results in heavenly conflict. The reason the way your world 
is the way it is, is a result of a pleasure problem. Because in us, there is a passion, a driving pursuit for satisfaction. And we're willing to do what it takes to get what we don't have. Under the idea that if we don't have it, life's not worth living. So I'm going to do what it takes in order to get what I need, even at your expense. Which is where the conflict comes. And I'm going to leverage assets I think I can control. The world in which I live. The cosmos that is my home. With its asset base. Providing solutions for satisfactions that I don't want to wait on God to provide. Worldliness. That's this section. Read with me. What is the source? Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What's the core problem? This is a pathology. You have conflict in your life, no matter where that conflict resides, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. This inherent desire, this appetite for self-satisfaction. Is it not that? Yes, it is that. It's a rhetorical question. In your members, your fallen members in your humanity, or your community, the members of your community. You can take it both ways and both apply. The reason I have conflict outside of me is because of this appetite in me. The reason I have conflict in me is because I'm conflicted. If you claim to be a Christian, you also claim that God is the source of my life. And this desire for satisfaction is either coming from the fountainhead of life in God, or it's coming through Harry and what Harry can find in the world that he can connect with and have some measure of control over. Is that not the source? Verse 2, you lust, you have high, high passions, strong passions, the word for lust, and you do not have. So what do you do? You commit murder, which is to say you'll do whatever it takes to get whatever you perceive you need. Think Cain and Abel. You are envious and cannot obtain. So there's this inherent frustration. So you fight and you quarrel. You have it, I want it, I'm going to take it. Or I'm going to be angry and jealous of you because you have it and I can't get it. You ask, or excuse me, the end of verse 2, you do not have, here's the problem, in part, it's the method. You do not have because you do not ask. Housed in that is you're not asking God, you're self-sufficient. Praying people are dependent people. This is self-dependence, not God-dependence. That's why you don't have it. You're seeking to get it on your own. You ask, method's a problem, so is the motive. You ask and you do not receive. So you're now praying, but you're not receiving answers to your prayers because your method is correct, but you're asking with wrong motives. What does that mean? Self-satisfying, self-gratifying, it's about me appetites. Any prayer offered that involves God satisfy me for me, independent of you or others, is a defective petition. You don't have it because your motives are self-gratification, self-interest. Look, the people around you aren't into selfishness, and neither is the God who made you. So, 
You ask with wrong motives, and he tells you here, so that you may spend it, invest it on your own pleasures. Because it's self-interest. God, that's conflict with people. That's why you have it. Verse 4 informs us that it results in conflict with heaven. So if you think it's bad, the conflict on earth and with your human relationships, it's worse than that. You're an adulteress if you're a professing believer. You're a betrayer of a relationship with God. You have chosen an illegitimate solution to your situation. You abandon God for self-satisfaction through the world around you, which is why it goes on to say you're an adulteress. Do you not know friendship with the world? That has to do with affection, alliance, companionship, priority. Friendship with the world is, is hostility toward God. The word hostility is not mild. At the heart of this word is hateful. Imagine me saying to my covenant partner, Karen, I hate you. Those are strong words. Now imagine me living in a way that demonstrates that hostility. I'm choosing someone else other than you, which she will receive because of her expectation that I made covenant promises. She would consider that hostility, hurtful, hateful. And guess who else feels that way? For those who make a covenant relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's adultery. It's a betrayal. It's hostility. And when you choose the cosmos, the world around you, the systems, the structures that make up the world that is governed by the God of this world, when you choose that as an alternative because of this driving engine in your heart. I've got to be satisfied. It's adultery, it's hostility, and you become, this is so sobering, verse 4 at the end, a friend, if you, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? General statement, no specific verse. It's going to explain why this is so horrific or why it's so challenging. Verse 5, we talked about this debatable translation. Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, that would be capital H, the subject is God in this translation. One of the options, he, God, jealously desires the spirit which he has placed within us or made to dwell within us. Your human spirit, he's jealous for you, the relationship he has with you in your humanity. Or he's jealous for the spirit, his spirit he's placed within you that somehow is distanced because of the choices you're making to be a friend of the world. Or the subject isn't God who jealously desires. The subject is humanity. Because there's no subject here. It's placed here interpretively. He is a reference not to God, is the other option. But to you, every human being. We jealously desire, envy, what? The world around us with the spirit that we have within us. I get up in the morning spring-loaded 
to pursue satisfaction for myself outside of the God who I have a relationship with by way of covenant promise. That's a big problem. So the answer then is, it's a commentary on why it's so hard, or it's a commentary as to why it's so egregious before God. Verse 6. Am I hopeless? The adversative conjunction, but, despite the fact that everywhere I look, I have injury, heartache, division, war with words, war in life, despite that, despite the fact that I've picked the world over God, despite the fact that I enjoy by His labeling based on my choices, I'm an adulterer. I've betrayed heaven. I've violated my Christianity. I've ruined human relationships despite that, despite that I'm damaging my heavenly relationship and maybe even being denying the fact that I'm a Christian despite all of that. Despite of the fact that I get up every morning with a predisposition to idolize Harry and Harry's desires. And I'm not thinking I'm the only one Because this commentary, does the Scripture speak to no purpose? Read the Bible. There's none righteous, no, not one. Nobody seeks good. We naturally, in our fallen nature, pursue self-gratification. That's my problem. But, verse 6, God gives. Static present. Static present means it's always this way. It's not like one day it won't be true. Every day it's true. It's a static reality. It's a you-can-count-on-it reality. God gives greater grace. Grace is help from heaven. I said it. it's heaven's horsepower. It's not just unmerited favor. It's help. For what? My issues. Your issues. I don't have to stay in the cycle of foolishness and injury and pain and spiritual adultery. I have hope. Why? Because God gives greater grace. Not because I worked for it, because He gives it to those who are desperately aware I have to have it, which is why the next conjunction, therefore it says, Because God gives greater grace conditionally to those who qualify and attract such help from heaven. Watch what the words say. Verse 6. God gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud. Who's the proud? Harry's going to take care of Harry. God's opposed to Harry when Harry is in that condition of mind and heart and lifestyle. Opposed. Anybody want to be in opposition with God? That's a bad choice to make. And God says he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to whom? The humble. Who are the humble? The humble are those who go, I am in a condition and need that is desperate for help. I keep doing this. 
It's a violation. It harms every relationship. It's an internal war. It's a human experience that's conflict-based. And I am now standing in opposition to God. I need help. I'm not going to work harder. I'm not trying harder. I'm not going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm begging for help. Desperate humility is lowering yourself in recognition that I don't have what I need to overcome the challenges around me. But God has what I need. And He'll give it to every humble-hearted person that is willing to declare their desperate dependence. Now, there's another connective word, verse 7. Do you see the word, therefore? Therefore says, this is how you express the humility that invites the help from heaven. Because humility is the condition to experience divine provision, I need to do these things. These are not works. These are expressions of humility. What does humility look like? Because I can tell you I'm humble, I'm beat up, I hate my life, I don't like how my relationships go, I hate the pattern of my spiritual journey. I can say all of that, and I can be sad. Because there is a sorrow that has to do with consequences. And then there's the sorrow of God, which produces repentance without regret. True humility isn't just woe is me. True humility is... I'm down and I'm looking up. I need help. And this is what help, this is what attracts help from heaven. This is what humility looks like. Submit, there's five categories, there's ten verbs. This is contextual run up to where we're going to camp today. Submit, therefore, to God. So instead of resisting God and being an enemy of God, you surrender to God. Hupo tasso, you lay down. You tasso to arrange hupo yourself under. You start your day subordinating your will to his will. And lexically, which is the Greek uh, dictionary, lexically, this word means you submit and display that subordination in obedience. What God says, a submissive person says, I want to do. I will do. Not my will, yours be done. I'm submitting. If you say it, I'm doing it. I'm not fighting you about it. I'm not getting around to it when I want to. Remember, delayed obedience is what? (laughs) Disobedience. I read that as a little boy. I need to hear that more often. These verbs are do-it-right-now verbs. These verbs are not optional verbs. You want help from heaven? You want the grace that is greater? If you want the healing help from heaven to overcome internal, relational, and heavenly spiritual conflict, you've got to humble yourself, and it starts right now, submission. Verb number two, resist. Not God. Resist the enemy, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Category number two, resist. Resist the devil. The, the, the word means to stand in opposition to. You remember in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul confronted Peter? You know, Peter was saying he was compromising. Spiritually compromising, compromising the gospel. Paul shows up and says, does what? He said, I withstood him to his face. I opposed him. That's this word. It's face opposition. It's I'm standing my ground and I'm confronting an adversary. The word devil's diabolos, someone who's thrown down. That's what it means. 35 times in the Bible, Satan, our adversary, is called diabolos, the thrown down one. He's thrown down, or he will be during the tribulation halfway through. He'll be thrown out of heaven. He has access to accuse the brethren. There'll be a war in heaven. He'll be thrown down. It's going to make him really angry. And he's going to throw down God's people. And he's been throwing down God's people since he fell himself. So the thrown down one, you're going to resist him. And you're going to resist him in order to oppose his temptations and seductions Remember, he's the who? The God of this world. The whole world lies, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in his power. So you have this supernatural influencer impacting the world, the system, government, art, media, we talked about this. The influencer is the throwing down one. He's going to leverage assets in the world that in our foolishness we think will be satisfying when in fact they are toxically destructive. He's a seducer. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a destroyer. I don't have time to take you there, but you should take a high-speed tour through the book of the Revelation and watch the thrown down one call out the demonic horde from the abyss. He's given the keys to open up the holding place, the prison of fallen angels, Jude, Johnny mentioned Jude, who violated their station by some involvement with humanity. And so they're incarcerated and bound. And they've been bound since since, uh, Genesis chapter 6. So you have this horde released And they're restricted by divine boundaries to bring torment to every human being who doesn't bear the seal, the seal of God. That's the 144,000 set apart as missionaries to share the good news during the tribulation. They will not be impacted by the demonic horde that comes out in order to torment men for five months. So much so, this is Revelation 9. Men want to die, and they can't. I don't want to live. I can't live. This pain, this torment inflicted upon me by this demonic horde led by Apollyon, the destroyer, Abaddon. That's the enemy. He's a hateful, hurtful, murderous, murderer from the beginning, liar from the beginning. And the whole world lies in his power. This exhortation says, humble people resist his 
negative, hurtful, seductive, adversarial influence through the world that he governs and rules. Resist him. Stand against him. Oppose him to his face. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. So you're submitting to God if you're humble, which I've written in my notes, freely and joyfully subordinate your will to God's will and objective obedience. Number two, confrontation, resist the devil. Let me give you a kind of a bottom line statement. Be ready and resolved to stand in the truth of your Christian testimony and God's word. You want greater grace, you need to display humility. What does humility look like that attracts that grace? Confrontation. Standing your ground. Not retreating when confronted by the enemy and the seductions of the world in which you live. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You see the humility? Okay, this is Peter, not James. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Give you grace. Do you see submission? Under the mighty hand of God. So you have humility, you have submission, and now you have exaltation. Grace help, exaltation. How do you display your humility? By, this is a participle modifying how you humble yourself, by casting all your anxiety on him. You should, because he's able to help you, he has a mighty hand. Two, he cares for you. You know what proud people do? They worry. They're anxious. They carry their own load. Or they anesthetize themselves from that load. Taking drugs, buying into a relationship, doing something to medicate, self-medicate. And what Peter says is, humility manifests itself by casting that care on him. And we should because he cares for us. Now look at verse 8. Be, so, be of sober spirit. In other words, get your head right. This is serious. This lack of humility exposes you to the enemy. Be on the alert. Get your head up, get your head right. Your adversary, this is the word most used for Satan. The word Satan means adversary. 52 times he's called the adversary, the resister. Resisting the will of God and resisting the work of God in your life. Your adversary, not just God's, yours, the devil, diabolos, the throwing down one who has been thrown down, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is dangerous. This is today. There are no exclusions or exceptions. Not a grace church. The enemy never prowls here. No, he prowls everywhere, head up, eyes open. Verse 9, resist him. Do you see it? Resist him. The adversary's coming. You be openly opposed to his actions and his seductions. Oppose him. Firm in your faith. Do you see it? Resist it. How? Firm in your faith. All right, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Buckle up. I've got this week and next week before we have a Christmas party. And I'm going to finish this section. You say, Harry, you keep reviewing this. I know I do. 
I don't know how you get motivated to resist if you don't understand the weight of failing to resist or failing to submit. Because no matter who you are and what declarations you say, you're busted. So Ephesians 6 is a parallel passage. Now listen, I will say this, and you're going to get a double barrel because our pastor is going to open to Ephesians 6 this morning, 10 through 13. So either that's God's will for you or for humility for me, okay? Because John will teach it, but I'm going to teach it to you here because this passage talks about how Christians walk in a worthy way, governed by the Holy Spirit, 518, Walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, submission. Submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. You've got submission. You've got the theme of submission, and you've got the theme now of the enemy, resistance. This is the end of Ephesians This is the final installation on what is necessary to walk worthy. When you see the word in verse 10, finally, it's a Greek expression which means bottom line, big deal, get this. I've said a lot. It's all inspired and critical. But if you don't get this, you will not achieve that. There's no worthy walking if you don't get these verses. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Two main verbs, two main ideas. I'm sorry about the clicking. I'll look like a gunfighter. (laughs) Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. First main verb. Get this. You've got to receive strength. It's a passive voice, which means you're not the generator or source of this strength. You receive it. It's a verb is passive. It means you receive the action. Receive strength. It's a present tense, daily. It's not just, hey, I get it on Sunday. I get it on Wednesday. I get it at my Thursday night Bible study. It's an every day you need strength. Whose strength? from the Lord. Receive strength. Be strong in the Lord. The sphere and the source of the strength that you need is divine horsepower. You need to get help from God for strength you don't have, and the the, the Greek verb means overcoming strength. So whatever, it was used politically, it was used militarily, whatever the category of of strength needed, God has it to overcome resistance. You're to receive it. So if you're going to resist the enemy, you can't look like a hunger striker. You know what I mean? When it's hunger strike, people who wouldn't eat, they get real skinny. You can't be a skinny Christian. You have to be a fit, strong Christian because you possess strength that God supplies. And you get it. That's big idea number one. You want to resist the enemy? You got to receive strength. Supernatural power from heaven. How do you do that would be the natural question. Let me give you the bottom line because we're buckled up. You must exercise faith in what God has promised and act like it. I'll give you a couple passages. Romans 4, 
Hebrews 11. You can look later, but he, he, uh, Romans chapter 4 is about the man of faith who caught Anoia contemplated his wife as being too old to have babies. He considered his age too old to father babies. The word katanoia means he scrutinized it. It's like what Moses did with the burning bush. You see a bush burning, you're going to go over and examine that bush. You're going to examine it, pay attention to it. He looked at his circumstances. She's too old, and I'm too old. Her womb is dead, and I'm not much better. And he staggered not at the promise of God, being confident. Did you hear that? That what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He grew strong through faith. All right, here's the secret sauce of strength. God said it. I believe it. I'm not living in la-la land. I look at my reality. There is no possible human way she's having a baby. Except for God, who made me a promise. And I'm going to anchor in that promise, being confident in what God said. Not staggering at my sick situation. Staggered not at the promise of God. Growing strong through faith. Being confident that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Hebrews 11 is the same way, 32 through 34. You can ask Gideon, God promised these 300 guys are going to defeat all those guys. Deborah and Barak, you have a few soldiers. The Assyrian has thousands. Not an issue. I got this. They went to war on a promise. You're in battle and you're doing life today with promises. Find them. Own them and trust them and receive the strength. Because if uh, Hebrews 11 actually uses, they became strong. They were weak and they became strong. You have to look at it. So, first step in resistance. Get strength that's supernatural. You feel it in Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul's praying. Turn over to chapter 3 since it's in close proximity chapter 3, Paul said, I'm bowing my knees for all of the family of faith, verse 15, and I'm asking God, verse 16, chapter 3, that he, God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, so he's got a lot of it, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Chapter 1, turn over there, again, close proximity, I pray, Paul says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Let's talk enlightenment. I want you to see what you haven't seen. It's been murky in the shadows. I want the bright lights on this. I want your heart to get this so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. I want you to get the bright lights on the hope you have because you've been called to Christ. And I like to say it's the hope of a new beginning. It's the guarantee of a happy ending, and it's the hope of presently changing. My calling changed me. My calling guarantees the outcome for me, and my calling means I am changing right now. We call it sanctification. I want you to know that, Paul says. 
Watch what he says, number two. I want you to know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want you to know about what is yours in Christ. You're an inheritor. All of the treasures of heaven and all of the possessions of Jesus Christ belong to you. You're a joint heir. I want you to know that. Don't leave that in the shadows. Number three, germane to our issue of power and strength. And I want you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power, that's God's, toward us who believe. I want you to know how much heaven horsepower there is available to every follower of Christ. I'm going to talk about this in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Same word as in Ephesians 6, might. Which, you want to see a demonstration of it? Which he, God, the Father, brought about in Christ when he, God, raised him, Christ, from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Look at verse 22. And he, God, put all things by that power in subjection underneath his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So the head of everything who enjoys supernatural power over everything, everything subordinated to him, is your leader and has provided access to power. Resurrection power, subordination power. Who needs that? I need that. You're going to resist? Do you know who the enemy is? He'll eat you for breakfast. You've never seen someone with this kind of power. Read the Bible. It's not muted power, it's restricted power. And when the evil day comes, you need strength that only God can give you because you're trusting promises that involve power and strength and capacity. I don't have to give in, I don't have to give up. It's not a proud, proud, it's not a prideful power. It's a confidence in God power. Are you tracking with me? This is good news. And Paul says, God, give them eyes to see it. Help them to get what they don't get. Go back with me to Ephesians chapter 6. First verb, you're a resistor. What do you need? Strength. Spiritual strength. How do you get it? You get it from God by trusting the promises of God, acting as if he is who he says he is, he can do what he says he can do, and you are who he says you are, his child, and he bestows on you assets necessary for you to overcome. Verse 11, second main verb. So you get ready by putting on strength or by receiving strength and putting on the full armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to do what? Stand firm against. You know what that is? Resist. Resist the enemy. You'll be able to stand firm against the methodios, the schemes of the enemy. So whatever lie he's wanting, whatever tactical strategy he wants to utilize to leverage his influence, to suck you in and do you in, you're aware of it and you have armor to protect you from it. He's a sneak attack artist. Sometimes he behaves as if he's an ally, an angel of light. 
He's a deceiver and a liar and a master adversary. Put on the full panoply, that is all of it, all of the necessary combat armor for success in opposing the enemy. And everything you're going to look at involves armor that is utilized and protective when you face the enemy. There are no armor parts for the back parts. So it's interesting, just by way of note, turning and running is not helpful or healthy. Put it on. It's a every day get dressed. Nobody came here today naked. Why? You needed to wear something to come to church today in order to worship today. You know what you need to do? You need to put on your armor every day so you can survive every day. Put it on. Put on the whole armor of God. For our struggle is not against, that's life and death struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our battle is not against our governor or our president. It's not against your employer. It's not against your neighbor. Our enemy is darker, bigger, and above spiritual wickedness in high places. It's diabolical. It's dark. Put on the armor because the enemy is greater than you can imagine. Verse 13. Therefore, because you have this powerful, dark, diabolical enemy, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to do what? Resist. Stand. Resist in when? The evil day. Let me help you understand evil day. Every day is not an evil day. You're not under attack every day. But there are days when evil is coming and you need to be prepared because you don't know when it's coming. Surprise attack come from a place you didn't expect with a temptation you didn't anticipate. That you can stand in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. All right, a couple grammatical things. You put on the whole armor of God so you can stand firm. The putting on of the armor happens prior to the evil day. So these are preparations you make. I must be prepared. Stand firm, therefore. You feel it in verse 4. Having girded your loins with truth. Six pieces of armor. Six necessary things to put on in order to be successful in resisting an enemy who's diabolical and powerful, murderous and hurtful. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Three pieces of armor right here, noted first, you have to do this, in order to be successful. Number one, acquire the truth. Gird your loins is make yourself ready with a belt of truth, which consists in the truth. The belt was what a Roman soldier would use in order to be ready for battle. 
The belt would hold the breastplate in place. The belt would hold the weapons necessary to defend yourself. The belt was the, this, these are in order. This is how a Roman soldier would get ready. He would gird his loins. He'd take the tunic, he would pull it up so he could, wouldn't trip. Maneuverability is what he needed. He needed to be ready. And the way he demonstrated, I'm ready for battle, is he pulled up the tunic and he tightened his belt. Be like me if I was preaching in the next service and I pull this down and I just walk up and I'm really casual. I'm not ready. Not at Grace Church. You're not going to look like this. <laughs> no, I'm buttoned up because I'm preaching in that space. I'm ready. Now, if you're going to do battle today, this has to be in this and this. The belt consists of the truth. All of these armaments involve the truth. And girding and preparing and tightening my belt is getting ready with what? Not my tie, with the truth. Which means you need to get it in you. It's like bullets in your gun. You're not Barney Fife. You don't have a gun for looks. You've got to have bullets in the gun. The bullets of your gun are the truth ammunition that you own and have. You've got it in your head and you've got it ready to fire. You're loaded. So that when the enemy who's a liar and a deceiver comes along and seeks to seduce you toward an option that's not honoring to God and nor satisfying to you, you pull out your spiritual weapon, which you've got ready to go, the truth, and you fire that weapon. In this passage, it's going to turn into a sword. No guns in this passage, but the sword was the defensive weapon. Acquire the truth. The breastplate, which went from the, just below the waist all the way to the neck. It was called the heart protector. It was bronzed. It was hard. It could, be, it could endure strong blows and attacks. The heart protector is the application of the truth. Because it's called the breastplate of what? Righteousness. You put that on. This is not imputed righteousness. I don't put on the righteousness of Christ. I possess the righteousness of Christ. I've already been robed in his garment. This is not salvation and righteousness that I'm putting on. This is not positional righteousness. This is practical righteousness. When I take the truth that I've acquired and I demonstrate sincerity and practicality by applying it and living it, I protect my heart. Put that on. Acquire the truth and apply the truth. Now listen, the big danger at our church because we are a truth-telling church. Amen? You glad for that? Me too. Here's the danger. I can hear it, and I don't live it. Which means what's exposed? I am. I got my belt on, but I got no heart protection. The breastplate consists of righteousness that I live out. Some translations and some commentators actually say that this word has two nuances. One is practical righteousness and sincere desire to do the truth that you know. It has to do with sincerity and integrity. So I don't want to just gather data. I want to live the, the reality. I don't want to just be full of truth. 
I want to live the truth. That's the breastplate. So you acquire it, you scavenge God's word, you read it, you get it, you meditate on it, bullets in your gun, because you're going to need them. And that holds up your breastplate, which means you're living the truth, and your feet are shod. The word shod means your, your sandals are tight. Literally means to tighten your sandals. Periodically, I'll play golf with somebody and they don't tie their shoelaces. I don't know what good those shoes are. They're supposed to keep you grounded. It's not just maneuverability, it's stability, and it's both. I uh, was in Germany several years ago, and I got to go to a museum, a Roman fortress, uh, an old one on the western side of the uh, former Roman empires in Germany, and there's a museum with Roman sandals, and these were heavy-duty work boots with nails, long, jagged nails that represented what a Roman soldier would have to shod their feet, to keep them rooted. I played college football. I played football in the mud and the rain. One of the things you lose is your ability to move. And what you do as a football player is sometimes you change your cleats. They used to have different lengths. And if you had a muddy terrain, they put longer cleats in your shoes. Because stability matters when you're in battle, not just competing, but fighting for your life. Your feet are shod with the preparation, do you hear the word preparation, with the gospel, which consists of this big idea, which is your foundation, peace. What does that mean? I accept this truth, that I, God is on my side. I'm reconciled. The word peace has to do with being reconciled to God. This is one of the things the enemy will tell you. The enemy will assault you with ideas. You don't deserve this. You're no good. You're not a child of God. You're a loser. There's all kinds of noise. God's not with you. He's against you. I've talked to enough people who are in Christ to know that the enemy can lie to you about your relationship with Christ. Listen, the reason God is going to show favor and provide help for me is not because I'm a performer, but because he has reconciled me through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're no longer enemies, we're friends. The peace of God is the guarantee that God and Harry are on the same team always. I have help because I have an ally who loves me and made peace with me through the blood of his son. I'm no longer in exile. I'm no longer an enemy. I'm no longer an outsider. I'm no longer Harry without God in the world. I'm Harry, child of God, reconciled by the son of God, and I enjoy relationship in the family of God. And you know what your feet keep you anchored? Is God's with me. He's my tag team partner. And I'll tell you what, if Harry had God with him, I'm walking down the streets of L.A. today. I don't care because of the partner with me is greater than he that is in the world. Can you say amen to that? What will cause you to run? What will cause you to be defeated? Retreat or defeat is when you fail to recognize and accept this truth. God is on my side. I am reconciled to God. I'm at peace with God. 
Oh, I may have conflict in my life, but my position before God doesn't mean I don't have a relationship with God. See, I can make myself his enemy by my choices, but he's not becoming my enemy. He's my father. Harry deserves it. Harry's a really good guy. You know, he taught Cornerstone today. He opened the Bible. I'm so proud of him. That's not how it works. I'm a Christian. I've been reconciled to God. He knows my name. I'm at peace with God. I'm not his enemy. I may behave like I'm his enemy, but he's not my enemy. That keeps you stable. Because otherwise, you're going to run. You're alone. You're vulnerable to the enemy who can take you down and you know it's helpless and hopeless for you. I'll never get out of that. I can't get God doesn't like me. God's not going to help me. I'm a loser. I don't I don't testify. I don't live the way I ought to live. Listen. Welcome to the human club of Christians converted who sometimes look like Roman 7 Christians. The things I want to do, I don't do. Now I'm not making an excuse for you. I'm not saying live there. I'm saying, thanks be to God, who can deliver me? Jesus Christ has, and there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know those verses? Lock them down. Because sometimes you'll be a loser. Sometimes you'll be guilty. Stone drop dead guilty. And you'll be struggling to own it because you're still trying to do the Adam and Eve, hide from it. And you need to be solid in this conviction. I can fail, but that does not make me a failure. I can stumble, and that does not make me an enemy of God. I'm tied down, standing with long, thick nails. I'm not moving. I'm in a defensive posture, and you're not pushing me anywhere. Can you say amen to that? Some of you are more excited than others. I would be excited. The only thing you're not excited about is there's three more pieces of armor and only one week to go. And then three other verbs. Yeah, I know. We'll get there. Oh, ye of little faith. (laughs) Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be encouraged. We don't want to live a contradiction. We don't want to live in conflict and disharmony and we certainly don't want to be behaving in a way that acts as if we're your enemy we don't want to hurt you nor do we want to hurt others nor do we want to hurt ourselves and we want to resist the one who's our true enemy lord we need the truth we need to get strength we don't have and we need to put armor that on armor every day that we need We need to acquire truth, we need to apply that truth, and we need to be anchored in that truth. And I pray that for us all, and that as we journey into the holidays, with all of the joy of it, there can be opportunity for conflict and chaos. Help us to resist, and help us to follow, and help us to live in a way that honors you and blesses others. That's my prayer for us all. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.